0: morning. Okay, Uh, I know what you're thinking. You see that I've been in Florida and you're going, wow, that guy is dark. But I'm trying not to brag about that. Okay, today we are starting uh, the Epistle of James, which is a very powerful and just masterfully written epistle, one of my favorites. Uh, I love it. Uh, And it's obvious uh, it was written by a talented communicator who had a pastor's heart. Okay? Okay. The author's style is like no-nonsense, honesty, and it it includes some brilliant, brilliant illustrations, which, you know, I know you've heard of a lot of these, whether you realize it or not. Uh, And This is one way we know that the author was a powerful communicator, by the way we see him speaking there. But this letter was written with all the power and all the substance you'd see in any of Paul's letters. So, I mean, this is a very powerful letter and underrated, in my opinion. Now, there are several things uh, that become obvious when we're reading this powerful letter. First, it's obvious that the author was strong, and it's also obvious that he was experienced and he was a dedicated leader. Uh, he understood the spirit-filled life, and he understood the carnal nature of humanity. I mean, He had a very powerful understanding of humanity in a whole. Uh, but sadly, uh, a lot of believers haven't really put the time into studying this letter enough to really appreciate it. And I found that the contents of this letter are probably some of the most applicable in Scripture. There are so many things in here that are just easy to apply to your lives so if you take time to read it. Now, most scholars agree that the author of this letter was James, the half-brother of Jesus, okay? Because there's more than one James mentioned in Scripture. For instance, uh, James, the brother of John. The two are called the sons of thunder, you know, the sons of Zebedee. uh, But that's not the right James. Uh, This James here is actually Jesus' half-brother. But the tone, the knowledge, and the authority of this letter really reveal a lot about the author's identity, just a ton about his identity, uh, it's obvious that this author had intimate knowledge of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. And you'll see that a lot of the way he teaches may remind you of Jesus. Because Jesus used a lot of very brilliant illustrations to explain things. I mean, he really was able to draw this mental picture in your mind so that you could, you could take what he was teaching home with you. So, I mean, who would understand Jesus and, and be more like Jesus than someone who was raised with him, right? Uh, so the original audience for this letter, and we're going to talk about this again more in depth as we get into the message, um, but the original audience for this letter was the believing Jews who were scattered throughout uh, Palestine. Now, we can confidently say that because James will actually identify his audience in verse 1. Okay. Now, knowing the audience of a letter is really important in determining the context. It's very, very important. Knowing who the letter was written to helps you understand what he's saying. I've said this a zillion times, but context determines Meaning, right, and this letter is no exception. See, not knowing the audience makes context almost impossible to discern, and not knowing the context makes the letter almost impossible to interpret. So it's very, very important that we understand that. Now, the time frame. This letter was probably written before Paul's uh, initial missions to the Gentile world, okay? And we say that because uh, James makes no mention of Gentiles throughout this entire letter, right? And he doesn't mention the Apostle Paul, or any of the churches he helped establish. Now, it would kind of be a slap in the face to those churches if he, if he had this letter and he wrote this letter and never even acknowledged some of their struggles, some of the things they were going through and some of the things they were putting up with. It would be kind of a slap in the face for him not to mention those. So most people believe that this was written before Paul actually went out on his missions to the Gentiles. So that would suggest that the date of this letter is around AD 34 35. Now, if that date is accurate, and it is, I believe it is, right? If that date is accurate... Um, James was by far the earliest New Testament document written, okay, by far, because it would have been written around 34, 35 A.D. Galatians, a lot of people think, was the first book written, and it was written around 40 A.D., so this would have been written four or five years before Galatians was written. Now, the purpose for this letter uh, was to encourage believers to face their trials with faith. Now, after Stephen's murder, the New Testament church just started growing rapidly, It just kind of exploded after Stephen's martyred, Stephen was martyred. If you look in Acts 9.31, it says, The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord. That means respect. Uh, and with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. Now, Stephen was this godly man uh, who was also the first recorded martyr in the New Testament. And I love reading about that. It's in Acts chapter 7 if you want to read it. I was really tempted to read that, but uh, he was basically put on trial by the Jews. And most people, knowing what the Jews were going to do to him, I mean, realized they'd already crucified Jesus, so they knew he knew they weren't above killing him. But when they kind of accused him, he boldly upheld the gospel, and he rebuked them right to their face, knowing that doing so could cost him his life. And people saw this boldness, uh, and they saw his faithfulness, and because of that, it turned a lot of people to Jesus. They thought, man, if what this guy has is so powerful that it makes him stand up to people who will most certainly take his life, then whatever he has must be worth looking into. So the church just exploded. But as expected, when the church grew, what else do you think is going to happen? The enemy is going to come, and he is going to i mean amp up his attacks. And as we'll see in this study, he attacks uh, several of the young churches, and he, and he does that to cause inner church squabbles. I mean, he distracts these believers with envy and with pride and with greed and with worldliness, right? And more specifically, there were two main purposes of this letter, okay? It wasn't just to encourage them to be able to get through that, right? And there was a lot of persecution. The purpose of this letter, uh, there's was, there was like two main purposes we can break it down to, right? The first was to encourage believers to, you know, to face their trials and their temptations with faith instead of just giving up. That was one of the first purposes. But the second was... Uh, to restore a sense of peace and cohesiveness in the churches, because they were squabbling. I mean, the enemy was actually kind of dividing them, Uh, because if they didn't learn to do that, they didn't stand much of a chance of facing all the stuff the world was going to throw at them, because the world had a lot more to throw at them than they had faced at this time. They had a ton of life storms yet coming their way, and if they didn't have cohesiveness, and if they didn't have faith in trials, it was going to be a real, real problem. Now, the title of this series is simply faith, and the reason we called it that is that's basically the main theme. And the title of today's message is Wisdom and Trials. Okay, so now I got you all caught up. That's your intro. Let's jump right into the James chapter 1, verse 1. It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Now, I love the humility that James exhibits in this opening greeting. I just absolutely love it because, remember, this is the half-brother of Jesus. Okay, he grew up with the Son of God. I mean, that's, I mean that seems like something you'd want to mention, right? He grew up in the same household as Jesus, yet he didn't give himself a specific title. He didn't use that to his advantage, another Christ-like attribute that he had. He didn't use that to his advantage. Uh, all he did was, was kind of label himself a dedicated believer and servant of God. He called himself a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as, previously, uh, as we previously discussed, after this introduction, James identified his audience. First, he says, I'm just a servant of God. And then he identifies who he's talking to, and again, he was talking to uh, the Jewish believers who had been scattered throughout Palestine. Now, the life of a Jew who had converted to Christianity was not easy. I mean, it was not easy at all, not in any way, because they were being heavily persecuted, not just by the Jews, but they were being heavily persecuted by all the, the pagans and, and all the other religions in that area, So they were getting it from all sides, from the government all the way around. They were just being absolutely attacked. So the temptation was definitely there for them to give up or to give in because they were just getting slammed. And by give in, I mean they were tempted to just surrender to or compromise with those who were persecuting them because sometimes it's easier just to not say anything and just go with the flow and not be the subject of persecution. That had to be a huge Huge temptation for them. So James wanted to encourage them to learn to embrace their trials instead of, of falling apart during trials. All of us face trials. Every one of us faces trials at one time or another. If you haven't yet, you will. And all of us may have even been tempted to surrender from time to time, because the, the trials get heavy sometimes. But I'm confident that this letter that James wrote is so powerful, it's it's gonna strengthen us the same way it strengthened his readers. I just believe that about this letter. Right, Because all the trials and struggles, they're definitely difficult. They're hard no matter what they are. And some people say, well, mine's worse than yours. Listen, everybody, it's relative. Everybody's struggle is bad for them. Okay, They're all difficult, but they don't have to seem hopeless. Because God always stands by his people in good times and especially in the bad times. And it's sad because I think sometimes we want to honor God when things are going good. But when things are going bad, we want to blame him instead of embrace him and see if we can learn from him. So this is one of the reasons that I mean, James, really, James really went out this, at this. Now, verse 2. Now, James discusses the topic here in verse 2 that makes a lot of us scratch our heads in confusion. And I know a lot of you have probably read this and had some confusing thoughts because you've talked to me about it. So let's look at this. James 1, verse 2 says, Consider it all joy. Has anybody ever struggled with that? You know what's coming next, right? Listen to this. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you What? encounter various trials consider it all joy my brethren when you encounter various trials okay before we go to the consider it all joy part because there's a lot there i like to first discuss two really important words that i think people just read right past and those two words are my brethren my brethren and they may not seem important but they're really really important the words brethren here uh, is the greek word adelphos and it means fellow believers So when he says, my brethren, he's saying, all who have believed. Those who are my brothers in Christ. And although this letter was written to believing Jews, it can and does apply to any believer. Because all believers, like Jews, become a part of God's chosen people the moment they believe. And a lot of people don't like to hear that. They think that the Jews are going to be like, you know, in the good apartments in heaven and all of us will be in the ghetto. You know what I mean? (laughs) And that's not the way it is. Right? We have to remember that, I mean, what made the Jews God's chosen people was not their ethnicity, it wasn't their location in the world, it wasn't their race, right? It wasn't their massive faithfulness, it was simply faith that made the Jews God's chosen people. That's all it was. If you look in uh, Romans 4-3, it says, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham, what? Believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So, Abraham was perceived, and this is the father of faith, this is the patriarch of the Jews, Abraham was considered faithful because he believed when everyone else didn't. He trusted in God, and that is what made him righteous. It wasn't because he was of a Jewish nationality. It had nothing to do with that. They believed, others didn't. That's basically what it boils down to. Faith is what made them God's chosen people. So when each one of us exercise faith and trust Jesus Christ, we become a part of God's chosen people. We're not the second class. We are all in the same level with God. We are all believers. We are all considered righteousness for the sake of Christ. Right Now, a lot of people seem to interpret verse 2 in a way that I don't think James or God intended for them to. So let's read it again. James 1, 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, I've heard people say, and maybe you've thought this, why would God want me to consider suffering joy? Has anybody ever thought that before? Has anybody ever looked at that and said, yeah, that's awesome scripture. Can you do it? Nope. Because it's tough. How many people have ever had something go wrong in your life and go, thank you, Jesus? Right? Many. We don't do that. You get a flat on the way to work and go, teach me, Father, from this. (laughs) You don't do that. Right? So it's tough for us to, to grasp how we can be saying, consider sufferings and trials a joy. I mean, that's tough for us, especially when you realize what the Greek word for trials here actually means. It includes a lot more than what you think, okay? Because the word translated trials here, used in verse 2, is the Greek word perosmos. And uh, basically it means, and listen to this, it means to be examined or tested through difficulties and temptations. That's what trials means. It's not just hard times. It's when you're being tempted. It's when you're going through any difficulty. That's what the Greek word encompasses and the English language just doesn't embrace it in that translation, right? Now, James was saying that we should consider our trials and temptations an opportunity. That's why we should have joy from it, and I'll explain that. Specifically, we should see it as an opportunity to prove the quality and the effectiveness of our faith. It's kind of, you know, I hate to use this illustration because it's, I mean, it's an, on scale it's very small comparatively, but, I mean, you don't understand or appreciate a spare tire until you have a flat Am I right? You don't understand how important AAA is until you're broke down in the middle of Butte, Montana somewhere <laughs> and nobody's anywhere near you. You don't understand how important something is until you actually put it to good use. And that's basically what's, what's happening here. It's an opportunity for us to see uh, the quality and effectiveness of our faith. And what makes people struggle is the concept of being joyful while that's happening. That's, that's what's hard for us to grasp. And it doesn't mean going, yes! Yes! I love suffering. That's not what he's asking. I mean, he's not asking you to look forward to, right? He's not asking you to look forward to or to even hope for trials. He doesn't expect you to go, Lord, please make my life difficult. Please make me lose my job. Please make me lose a loved one. Please let me struggle. That's not what he's asking. He's not saying it's so much fun that you should be hoping that you get a chance to suffer. That's not what he's saying, and sometimes I think that's the way we take this. Remember, nobody, no one ever enjoys trials. And I mean no one. The 12 apostles did not enjoy the persecution and the trials they were under. They didn't enjoy it. Jesus himself did not enjoy trials. Now, when I say that, people go, that's awful. Of course he did. He was Jesus. No, he was also a man. All God and all men. Look at what Jesus said when he prayed in the garden. Do you remember this? Matthew 26, 39. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. See, the human side of Jesus dreaded that mock scam trial they were going to put him through. He dreaded the torture and the beatings they were going to put him through. The human side of him dreaded being crucified, having spikes driven through his wrists and the arches of his feet and hanging him on a pole so that everyone could laugh and mock at him as he died. He did not look forward to that. He wasn't excited about that. And the human side of him didn't want to go through those trials and said, God, if it's your will. When he says this cup, he meant this, what I have to deal with, what's being handed to me, like a cup's handed to someone to drink, what's being handed to me. If there's any way for you to make this not happen, I'm good with that. But the God side of him was willing to trust God the Father and endure it all, because he knew that God would use those trials to accomplish his will so even jesus didn't want to go through the trials he went through nobody likes them and it cracks me up when people are spirit try to act spiritual and say well it doesn't bother me at all when i'm struggling there's a reason it's called struggling you know what i mean because it's not easy and when you tell me that you physically enjoy suffering that means you're a liar no one does. If you physically enjoy suffering, put your hand on. I'll smack it with a hammer. I'll make your life so joyous today. Nobody enjoys suffering. Nobody enjoys that. So, some may ask, I know you're telling us that we need this proves the quality and effect of, the effectiveness of our faith. But who are we trying to prove that to? Who are we trying to prove the quality and effectiveness of our faith to? Because we're certainly not trying to prove it to God, right? God already knows. He knows how you're going to come through a trial. He knows all of that. We're not doing this to prove the quality or effectiveness of our faith to God. Okay? The answer to that is actually twofold. Here's who we're trying to prove that to. First, we're trying to prove the quality of our faith to ourselves. First and foremost, we're trying to prove it to ourselves. Because here's the thing. God always comes through for us whenever we need Him if we completely trust Him. He always comes through for us. And when God comes through for us in a trial, in a difficulty, it actually builds our confidence and builds our faith. Now, how many of you have ever been delivered from a difficulty by praying, and you know it was God that brought you through it? How many people have ever been through that? Right? That's awesome, and he always does step up like that. And when that happens, the next time you face a trial, it makes it a little less intimidating because you remember that God had your back the last time you struggled. So it's a little easier to trust him. And the more trials that come and the more God steps up for you, the more confident it makes us. Because you realize that God will have your back even when no one else does. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where literally you feel like everybody's turning on you. Anybody ever been there? I mean, you just can't. No matter where you look, you're like, I'm alone. That's exactly what the enemy wants you to think. Look at all this stuff that's going wrong in your life. Where's God? You are alone here your family's not backing you, your friends aren't backing you, no one's helping you, you are alone, why don't you just give up? That happens time and time again. It happens to all of us, but when we surrender to God, He always steps up, and then we realize we're never alone in trials unless we just want to be, unless we just want to face those trials alone. That's the only time we are ever alone in a trial. Now, the second thing We're trying to prove the quality and effectiveness of our faith to the world who is always watching us. They're watching to see how we deal with every situation. And you can bet that the enemy is going, yeah, watch Mr. Christian right now. Let's see what he does now that he's lost his job. Let's see how much he praises God now. Watch this Christian guy now. See what he's doing because, you know, he just lost a loved one. Let's see how faithful he is to that God he's always talking about. And so the world listens, and they are watching every step we make and here's what I say keep watching because if I'm trusting God during that trial I'm going to experience his deliverance and you get to be in the front row seat to see it happen also you will get to see God move in my life they will see God move in your life if you trust him during a trial because he will deliver you and when he continually delivers believers who are trusting in him they can't help but stand up and take notice listen they have struggles like I have struggles but this God they serve seems to always bring them through Maybe, maybe I need to look into that myself. And sometimes, because of the struggles you went through and the faith you displayed in those struggles and in those trials, it might actually end up leading those who are watching you to Jesus. And I have seen it happen time and time again. As a matter of fact, when I was a kid, and and a lot of you were raised in church, and I'm thankful you were. I was not so much. I mean, we went to church, but, you know, not like I should have. Right? And, I, you know, and, and to be honest with you, I didn't have any faith. I didn't believe in Christ, and I lost my mother at 15, so I was uh, kind of mad with the whole God thing. You know what I mean? So I, it, wasn't, it wasn't like you think. But when I would get on the bus, there was this lady who drove the bus, and she was always playing Christian music, and you know, she was always talking about Jesus, and she was so friendly and loving. And, and you know, I would, bus drivers hated me. Okay? I don't know why. Okay, I know why. Because, you know, occasionally there might have been a spitball or two shot to the rearview mirror they were looking back on. Perhaps, no evidence, no fingerprints, no DNA, but I think, at least they didn't have the, you know, the ability to use DNA at that time. I would get into all kinds of stuff. Bus drivers pretty much hated my guts. But not this one. Not this one. No matter what I did, even when she had to discipline me, she was loving. She would tell me all the time, I'm praying for you, Chris. God's got plans for you. And I would roll my eyes. And get off the bus and go, what a wacko. You know? Well, I'm just being honest. I wish I could tell you that I turned around and said, I see you, Jesus. And I didn't. I thought, nut job. And then she kept doing that and kept doing that and kept doing that. She showed me love all the time. And and it kind of started moving on my heart a little bit. When I came to Christ, I remember I was driving uh, driving home from a softball game that night. I was playing in a men's league softball. I was, I don't know, 21, 22. And there was this revival going on. And for reasons I can't explain, I pulled in. I had never been to a revival. I didn't know what it meant. right? And I saw this little church, and I'm like, what kind of nut jobs are having church on a Monday as I'm pulling in? I don't know why. And there was this teacher out of Pikeville, Kentucky, who taught at a seminary down there, who was speaking. And he spoke directly to me. Well, the enemy's saying, what are you doing? Look at these nut jobs, lifting their hand, praising God, get out of here. And I thought, maybe you're right. Maybe I shouldn't be here. And as I stood up, A woman in the front row turned around and smiled at me and it was that bus driver. That's when I knew God had called me there. Because the one woman who showed love to me in all situations was her. So I know that sometimes when you're going through struggles when you stand tall and show the love of Christ no matter what it makes an impact in people's lives. Because this impacted my life in huge ways. I still see that woman to this day. Right now, knowing that one thing we have to remember, knowing that God is in every trial and helping us get through every trial, we have to realize it's time to stop looking at our trials as punishments from God. And I know we all do that at one time or another. You don't have to raise your hands, but have you ever thought that when things keep going wrong and you're going, God, enough! What did I do? Why? That's what it's like watching the Steelers this year. Why, Lord? You know, as a matter of fact, that's what it's like watching the Hoosiers too. But anyway, I... There are times when things are going wrong, and you're just like, God, come on, what did I do wrong? Give me a break. Has anybody ever been there? You know what I'm talking about. I mean, you just can't help it. You think, why am I being punished? And the way I was raised, a lot of the people in my life, when things would go wrong, they would always say uplifting things like, God sent that on you. I'm like, I am like oh, i don't know what's going on. I broke my arm. God sent that on you. What would you do? So I looked at God as this guy who was walking around, you know, with a billy club waiting to thump me any chance he had. Because that's how they portrayed God to me. Someone got sick and died. Well, I wonder what they did. They died. I don't know. What do you mean what they do? Right? I mean, that mentality gets in our mind. We think every trial, every struggle is a punishment from God. It's not that way. God allows trials and struggles in our lives for our own good and for the good of other people who watch it. That's why he allows it, because he knows it proves his love and faithfulness not just to us, but to anybody who will believe. So he allows those to come on us. And hopefully... We understand that and appreciate that opportunity and try to take advantage of it. Now, James, it was clear to him. I mean, he just knew that it was very important for us to endure these trials. He knew it. And so, verses 3 and 4, he goes in depth explaining that. Look at this. Starting in verse 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, so James said God's faithfulness in our trials teaches us to have spiritual endurance, if you will. Spiritual endurance, right? Uh, Peter understood the same thing, and and, you know, I I relate to Peter, because he always stuck his foot in his mouth, and so do I. But Peter understood the value of endurance, and the endurance that we receive when we go through a trial, because he'd been through many of them. Remember the rooster crowing? I consider that a whopper right there at trial. He was through tons of trials. He understood. Look at this, 1 Peter 1, 6. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various what? Trials. Trials. Verse 7, so that the proof, if you're following along, underscore that, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter got it. And you can see when you break this down a little bit in the Greek, the Greek word translated proof here in 1 Peter 7 is doikamion, and it means considered good or pure after being proved through testing. I wish the English language would better grasp the Greek, don't you? Because they leave some really important things out here. It's not just proof, it's saying uh, basically it's considered true or pure or good because it's been tested and passed the test. That's what that word proof means in the Greek. That's a mouthful for the English just to go one word, isn't it? Proof. But it means a lot more to that. Right? And he said, he said that the endurance that comes from faith and trials is more valuable than gold. Okay? I think that's a huge statement there. Because here's how gold is purified. They take the raw gold and they put it into a fire and heat it up to where the gold starts to melt. Right? And get into a molten state. When it gets in that molten state, the impurities in the gold start to come to the top. And there's this liquid gold there, and, and the goldsmith would scrape the dross or the impurities off the top of the gold, like this, every time they'd come up. And he'd keep doing that until it was pretty much not bringing up any more impurities, right? And so what comes out of the fire, after he goes through all that, scraping all that off, what, the gold that comes out of that fire is very pure and very valuable, very pure looking. It's very clean. Totally different than what went in, right? Now, as valuable as gold is, and it is still valuable, right? And as valuable as it is, there's a couple of things that can never be. It can never be eternal. Gold can never be eternal. It will perish someday, right? It's not perfect. It, it can be damaged. It can be destroyed. It can be stolen. It can devalue. What's one of the things that goes up and down when the market goes up and down? The price of gold and silver, right? I mean, it can devalue. It's not eternal. It is a perishable item. It's a temporal item, right? The in, so the endurance that we gain, and this is what Peter was trying to get us to see, the endurance that we gain from exercising our faith in trials is a lot like the process of purifying gold, but the product that comes out of that is much better than gold, right? The product that comes out of enduring God's trials and faith is much better than gold because uh, our trials act like a fire, that purifies our faith. They act just like the fire in the gold, right? Because when we're in a trial, it's that fire that is purifying us, right? It's purifying us. It's taken, when we go through that fire and we trust God, all the doubts, all the fears, all the misconceptions start coming to the top so that God can scrape them off. And what's left when you come out the other side of that is more pure, and more valuable, and even more valuable than gold, because unlike gold, no one can take your faith from you. It doesn't devalue, it can't be stolen, it can't be damaged. Your faith is your faith, and the more you put it through the fire, the more pure it becomes. That's the, that was the, what he was trying uh, to get us to see here. And so James kind of summed up saying something similar but different. Uh, he said that, that endurance makes us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, that sounds pretty bold, but if you think about it, it's really, really true, right? Because because in the Greek, perfect and complete actually translate to mature, complete, or whole, making us whole again. So when we learn to trust God in any situation, He provides for all our needs. It gives us a whole other appreciation for God. And so we will be lacking in nothing because we have learned to trust God in everything. That's why we lack in nothing. Even when it seems like We're deficient. We know that God will fill that deficiency if we trust Him. So we are actually in a state of lacking for nothing because the one we serve has the ability to give us everything if we trust Him. And people say, well, I haven't known God that way. Well, then maybe you haven't trusted God that way. Maybe you haven't given God control in your struggles that way. Because if you do, you will be lacking in nothing because God will provide everything. Now, in verse 5, we're getting ready to go into verse 5 here. And James simplifies all this. By kind of explaining what trait we receive after enduring a trial. Because we pick up a trait from that. Right? He reminds his readers that the ultimate prize, the trait that you will gain from going through a trial and coming out successfully, right, is wisdom. That's, at the, that's, that's the ultimate goal, to have the wisdom to endure what comes at you in this world. And you get that from God, and you get that from learning who God is when you go through trials. Right? Listen, I have, been, I have lost everything before. And when you have lost everything, you learn that maybe you shouldn't depend on yourself so much. Because I made a mess of things. I know what it feels like. And I know the wisdom that I gained from seeing God reach His hands down and pick me up. I know the value they're talking about here. Wisdom is the trait that's so valuable. So let's talk about that. James 1.5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and what? It will be given to him. Okay, very powerful. I love this. Now, verse 5 is another one of those passages that believers seem to interpret way too generally. We don't look at it deep enough. Okay, because we automatically think that if we want wisdom, all we need to do is ask and sit down and wait for it to drop on us. That's what we think. And, I mean, that's true to a point. You have to ask for it. But there's a little more involved in the process. Right, and here's what it is. Remember, the context so far has been Uh, how to have faith when you're facing trials or struggles. That's the context so far, right? Sometimes when we ask for wisdom, God may give us that wisdom. He may answer, yes, I'm going to give you that wisdom, and he might give us that wisdom through what? Through your trials. So sometimes you say, God, give me wisdom, and a a trial comes upon you, and you're like, that's not what I asked for. I asked for wisdom, not to lose my job, not to have a guy at work I want to punch all the time but can't not what I asked for but God's saying I want to give you wisdom but you need wisdom that's applied wisdom that you learn from situations and so he may allow an answer to that prayer he may allow us to go through trials in order to answer that prayer and give us the wisdom that we ask for it's very important we understand that and when we ask for wisdom we have to actually believe that God is able to give it to us sometimes I think we do things because we're supposed to If you're going to church because you're supposed to, you probably don't leave with anything, right? Do you ever want someone to marry you because they think they should? You know what I mean? Our parents expected us to get married. I don't like you much, but maybe we should. You know, that's not what you want, right? And here's the whole thing. When we ask God for something, we have to truly believe that he can do it. And James talks about that in verses 6 through 8. He says, but he, this is the person asking for wisdom, but he must ask in faith without what? Any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Now underscore this, being a double-minded man, unstable in his ways. Now this is another one of those brilliant illustrations I was talking about in the beginning. Doesn't this remind you of Jesus, in a way, the way he talks? When he, when he makes a big point, he gives a big illustration. One that's brilliant, and this is a brilliant illustration. We're going to see a bunch more of these throughout this letter, but this is brilliant. Here's what he's saying. The waves in the sea have no say in when they're going to be calm and when they're going to be rough. They have no say in it. They are controlled by the moon and the wind, right? So the waves just blow around unstable and completely at the mercy of their surroundings. They don't get to make decisions. They just get blown around by their circumstances. That's, that's what the waves of a sea do. So also, the man who asks for wisdom but, but doesn't believe or have the faith to know that God can deliver it, right? He's just like those waves because they're asking with no confidence all the while looking for a way out on their own, right? They say, God, give me wisdom, but I'm going to see if I can figure this out without you, right? That's a double-minded man. The word double-minded in the Greek Uh, is deep sea cost, and it means, this is awesome, it means two-souled, like our soul, two-souled is what that means, right? It's the equivalent, spiritual equivalent, of a split personality, is what it is in the Greek. It's a spiritual equivalent of a split personality. A double-minded believer has two vastly different views of faith at the same time. On one hand, they believe that Jesus can give eternal life to anyone who asks for it, and anyone who believes in him, because they've exercised that and they've experienced that regeneration, they believe and they have the faith that anyone who asks God for eternal life will have it by faith alone. They believe that. So there's one mind that they, are, that they have, right? But here comes the other mind. On the other hand, their faith is too weak to surrender their lives to God. Why? Because they can't, because they can't help themselves. They can't help themselves from trying to fix their own problems and leave God out of it and before you, you know, turn your nose up at them, that's us a lot. Have you ever had a problem and tried to solve it and tried to solve it and tried to solve it, and when you've realized you finally can't and when things get worse and when you've made a mess of things, then you ask for God's help, right? That's the double-minded believer. They believe God's able to give you eternal life, free of charge, but they don't believe that he can be in control of your life and give you what's best for you. That's double-minded. That's a spiritual split Personality. They say they trust God, but they try to solve their problems on their own without seeking his advice. That's a spiritual split personality. And like the waves we discussed, they're at the mercy of their circumstances, just blown around by their circumstances. That's what he's talking about, being like the waves of the sea. Since they don't believe God is going to answer... Their prayer the way they want they're trying to figure it out on their own maybe i can do it this way maybe i can do it that way maybe it'll come through this maybe it'll come through that and they're just blown around unstable they have no ground to stand on that's why i think that's such a beautiful beautiful illustration because these people who don't trust god with their lives are insecure and god never intended for his people to be so unsure and insecure about their lives he really wanted us to trust him He's like, listen, I know you can't do this. I had to send my son. I proved it to you. I gave you a garden where there was no one there but two people. And the only thing they had to do is avoid one thing. There's really only one sin. And they committed it. I thought that would teach you that you need me. It didn't. So I gave you the law. I thought, I'll, do, I'll go the academic route. Here, I'm going to give you verbiage. I'm going to give you word for word what is required to be righteous. Now, did he think we would be able to do that? No. But he was sure hoping we could admit we couldn't when we realized we couldn't, but we didn't. He gave us the law. Here's what it takes. Did we do it? No. He's like, okay, I put you in a perfect situation. You blew it. I gave you written instructions. And like a man at Christmas, you didn't follow them. Right? I have gave you those things. So now I send my son to pay for what the sin that you couldn't pay for. And I promise to take care of you if you'll trust me. And you're still trying to do it on your own? What is wrong with you? That that's, has to be the way God feels. Maybe not. That's Chris Mosley view, but that's, <laughs> that's how I see it, right? Now, God has set up a system for building our faith and making us effective believers, right? And, and, and part of that system is kind of like boot camp. How many military people do we have in here? Or ex-military? Raise your hands. All right, so you guys will know this is true. Okay, so in boot camp, the goal is to break people down first, is it not? They have to break people down first And so they can rebuild them stronger and more confident. Right? That's the goal. They have to retrain people how to handle fear, how to take orders, how to be physically and mentally stronger and more confident in their abilities. They have to train you of that. But first, they have to get rid of all the bad habits you have, the rebellious nature, the undisciplined lifestyle. They have to break all that down and get that out of you. Because they can't have somebody on the battlefield that doesn't take an order or does take an order and is too afraid to carry it out. They can't have that. They've got to get that out of you so they can retrain you, right? And so that's, that's kind of what boot camp uh, is about. Now, that's exactly how God uses the trials that he puts in our lives. It's like boot camp. Because first he breaks us down in order, uh, in order to build us back up stronger and more confident, just like the military, right? And he has to retrain how we handle fear and how we handle difficulties. He has to retrain us. To where we don't fall apart when struggles come upon us. We don't blame people when struggles come upon us. We keep our composure, think about who we are and who we serve when troubles come upon us. He has to break us down and retrain us in those areas. He has to break down that independent attitude that we have that makes us feel like we actually are in control. I don't know how we can still believe that. How can you live any significant amount of time and really think you have the control to change much in this world? You just don't. I hate to break your bubble, but you just don't. He has to get that independent attitude out of us uh, that makes us feel like we're completely in control, then retrain us to surrender to His sovereignty, to understand that He is in control of everything, and realize that He controls all things and will direct us in all things if we will surrender to Him. It's just like boot camp. That When you see these trials, it's just like boot camp. And I promise you, there's no Marine, there's no Air Force, Navy, Army. No one is in boot camp and saying, I love this but they do joyously look forward to the day when it's over don't they guys in the military did you look forward to boot camp being over did you look forward to the product you would become after you left boot camp did you notice the changes that was happening in you and so you'll see soldiers and they have a desire they are considering everything they're going through joy because they have a goal to be whatever rank or to be in whatever you know, section they want to be involved in or whatever training they want to get, they're seeing the end result, so they're sticking it out so that they can have that. It's just like being in college. Nobody goes into college or freshman year and says, I love eating ramen noodles every day, having more classes than I have time to do, and sprinting across campus dropping stuff, hoping I make it to class where so everybody doesn't stare at me and walk in the building. Does anybody enjoy that? No, but you think, but when I'm done, I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a doctor. You have joy in what you will become. This is what James is trying to tell us. Those who allow God to rebuild them should have joy because they know the end product, the result that's going to come from that is that they will be a more effective believer who will be able to impact the world for Jesus. So their joy comes from what's going to come out of the fire, not what's going into it, not the process in the fire, but what's coming out of the fire that's the joy he's talking about. I'm not looking forward to suffering. I'm looking forward to learning how to handle it. I'm not looking forward to suffering. I'm looking forward to knowing God so well that I can look at suffering and say, give me your best shot. I'm not alone. That's the joy we get from trials. And this is what James is talking about. And he had to do this because he had to get these people's minds right because the enemy was pulling them apart and making them forget who they were and who they served. Okay, I'm going to close there. We'll pick up there next week. I'm going to ask you what to please bow your heads. This book has so much in it. So much. It teaches us so much about who we are and who we can be. But I want you to remember these promises are written to those who have believed. Now, if you want these promises to apply to you, all you have to do is believe. You don't have to be that person that proves you're good enough because you never will. You don't have to be that person that that worries about what their life used to be or what people think of them because God doesn't care. You just have to be the person that's willing to surrender to Him so that He can start caring for you the way He cares for every other believer. So if you're not sure where you stand with God, just make eye contact and put your head right back down. Bless those people. I'm not going to call you out. I'm just going to pray for you. And if you're watching and listening online, I'll be praying for you also. God knows your heart. Bless those people. Listen also. Believers, this book can transform us. We have a lot coming, both in this church and in this world. We are in uncertain times. And the times we're in, it's hard to have confidence. Unless, unless your confidence isn't in this world. It's in the one who created it. Then he can reform us, rebuild us, and make us into something powerful once we reveal, once we understand that, once he reveals it to us and we accept it. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for all that you do. God, we thank you that when we couldn't, you did. When we knew we were too unrighteous, you came and made a way for us to have eternal life through Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice that you made for us, for paying our sin debt, a debt we could never pay on our own. We thank you that you don't care who we are or who we were, or what people think of us or how much money we have. If we can believe that what you did was enough to guarantee our eternal life, you promise you'll give it to us and we thank you for that. We can't understand that kind of grace, but I'm thankful you have it and you offer it. God, I just pray for someone here who doesn't know you that you'll wipe away every fear and every doubt from their mind and let them see the love that took you to the cross so that they might believe. And if they do believe, I pray they contact us. And God, for those of us who are believers, the world is uncertain. There are things going on that are out of our control. But There's nothing going on that's out of yours. So give us the strength to trust you. Give us the strength to surrender to you. Give us the strength that no matter what's happening to us, that we will be confident, resting in our faith, that you have our backs and that you'll bring us through. And let us share that confidence with the world. We just pray that you would let us be the light you put us here to be. And we pray that as we leave here, you would keep us safe. Let us live what we profess. And if you don't return to take us home today, Let us come back together one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.